0: For starters, on Thursday morning, there was still another demonstration at the state Capitol against Governor Gretchen Whitmer and her stay-at-home executive orders that have shuttered thousands of Michigan businesses and cost the state's economy billions of dollars. This particular outrage on the Capitol lawn, the third of its kind, was billed as Judgment Day, and it was instigated by a group called Michigan United for Liberty. But Mother Nature did not take too kindly to the proceedings. She poured down rain on some 300 protesters. Uh, The legislature had hightailed it out of town the previous day, so they weren't there, and the Capitol was closed. Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirkey warned that if protesters brandished firearms in a threatening manner, they could be arrested under state law, fined and jailed. And meanwhile, while all this was going on, revenue estimators for the state of Michigan government came out with predictions or estimates that the state treasury is about billion in the hole right now in this fiscal year ending September 30th. That's only four and a half months away, folks. This isn't $2.5 billion in the hole with a whole year to figure out how to do that math. They only have four and a half months to do it. Um, Yes, there was uh, another lawsuit against Big Gretch, as she likes to call herself. Uh, It was filed by the conservative Free Market Mackinac Center, headquartered in Midland. The argument that the center advances is similar to that of Congressman Paul Mitchell, who filed a suit last week against the governor, arguing that the so-called curve is flattened and that the coronavirus can no longer be deemed a threat that would necessitate closing down most of the state's economy and constraining individual rights. I also might mention with respect to this $2.5 billion deficit right now looming between now and the end of the fiscal year, four and a half months away, the state agreed to pay out nearly $3 million to settle a lawsuit filed on behalf of Detroit schoolchildren who claim they are being denied the education they need to become literate. Governor Gretchen Whitmer also agreed to propose legislation for $94.4 million more for literacy-related programs and initiatives. But, of course, the legislature, which appropriates money, will have to agree to what Governor Whitmer has now promised. So uh, there is the continuing saga of the 77-year-old Wasso barber, Carl Mankey, who continues to defy Whitmer's executive order by cutting hair. He got some support, not only from swarms of demonstrators who rallied at his barbershop and thousands of dollars he's collected on a GoFundMe website, but from the Shiawassee County Sheriff, who said he would not enforce Whitmer's executive orders. Sheriff Bagol became the seventh such sheriff to say the same thing. Now, underscoring the seriousness of the COVID-19 crisis was the death at age 55, from the virus of a highly regarded former Senate minority leader, Morris Hood III, a Democrat from Detroit. Hood was the number two Democrat in the Senate when Whitmer was the Senate's Democratic leader between 2010 and 2014. I might mention right now, I think, that the number of coronavirus related cases documented in the state is approaching 50,000. And the number of deaths, I think, is around 4,800 right now. That is a total about equal to the population of, let's say, DeWitt, which is a little city just north of Lansing, or of Davison, just east of Flint, or of Sheboygan, up on the Straits of Mackinac. At the heart of this crisis is the debate over how the various states are dealing with the threat posed by the coronavirus, and specifically how the state's governors, like Whitmer, are dealing with it. Whitmer continues to enjoy healthy approval ratings in various polls for the way she has responded to the challenge, although disapproval is rising both in percentage in the population and in intensity. At the national level, a conservative group called FreedomWorks And the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, associated with former Ronald Reagan economic advisor Arthur Laffer, has released a report ranking the governors of the 50 states in their handling of the pandemic. Whitmer is one of 15 governors who get a grade of D. Putting that in some context, there were nine governors who got A's. 9 with B's, 11 with C's, and 5, including the District of Columbia, with F's. Democratic governors were not as highly ranked as Republicans in most cases, but there were some winners, including Democratic Colorado Governor Jared Polis, who got an A, and Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards and Montana Governor Steve Bullock. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, for what it's worth, got a C. So did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, a Republican who many observers have praised for his handling of the crisis. At the heart of the debate is the difference between policies that, like Whitmer's, rely on what is called compulsory shelter-in-place stay-home executive orders by the government that close down businesses in an effort to flatten the curve of rising coronavirus caseloads and deaths so that our hospitals will not be overwhelmed before vaccine is found and administers to the nation's vast population. Most states are following this model, including Michigan. Exceptions might be termed states like South Dakota or Georgia or Florida, where the hand of the state has been, let's describe it as lighter, and reopening of the economy has been earlier and more widespread. These outlier states are more like the other philosophy that governs the fight against coronavirus, and that is what is called achieving, quote, herd immunity, unquote. That's herd, H E R D. The primary practitioner of this controversial strategy globally is the country of Sweden, which, interestingly, has a population almost exactly the same as Michigan, about 10 million, although there are obviously substantial differences between the two jurisdictions. Herd immunity is defined as the resistance of the spread of a contagious disease within a population that results if a sufficiently high proportion of individuals are immune to the disease, especially through vaccination, but also naturally, through previous infection. At least half the population would need to be resistant before herd immunity kicks in, preferably as high as 83 to 94%, at which point the virus could be effectively eradicated. In fact, advocates say that this is the principal reason why herd immunity is a superior strategy, because it aims at wiping out the virus, as opposed to Michigan's shelter-in-place approach, which can only mitigate the pandemic, not destroy it. Sweden has a higher death rate than a lot of other countries, but its unemployment rate is a heck of a lot lower Eight to 10%. And a lot of people say herd immunity will not work in America because of our liberty or death ethos of rugged individual and independence. So we've got a long way to go to figure out how we fight our way out of a disease-ridden nightmare. I'll be back in a minute with our first guest, and we're going to continue on with the discussion of various facets of the fight against coronavirus in Michigan. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back and we are very fortunate to have with us Bill Candler, was the former secretary of the Senate. That means he was the chief cook and bottle washer that made the whole chamber run when he was there. And he's a longtime Lansing lobbyist, and he is a member of the six-member Capital Commission, it is called. Bill Candler, thanks for being our guest today.
1: Thank you very much, Bill. Good morning, and I appreciate you having me
0: on. Well, listen, my pleasure. And I know you're going to be very helpful to our listeners about the confusion of and uncertainty about whether or not firearms ought to be allowed in the state capitol. Back on April 30th, there was a demonstration in which a lot of the demonstrators entered the capitol building. They actually got into the gallery of the chamber, and they had firearms, guns, uh, and there has been a rising uh, crescendo of demands to get firearms out of the Capitol, saying they ought to be banned, even though the law allows what is called open carry of firearms within the state Capitol. And the Capitol Commission, of which you are a member, you all met on Monday and looked at this issue. What did you decide at that point, and how do you think things should proceed from now on?
1: Well, Bill, that, that's that's a very interesting story because the, the meeting on Monday was a regularly scheduled uh, meeting of the Capital Commission. We meet the uh, every, once a month on the second Monday of each month, most months. Uh, well, sometimes we if we don't have an agenda item, we we, we will skip that month's meeting. But uh, just a few days before that meeting, which was, which was Monday, um, May 11th, the, the Thursday evening prior to that, for the first time uh, and <laughs> ever. Uh, we had we we uh, in a letter was re- released by the attorney general's office saying that the Capitol commission had the authority to ban guns from the Capitol building. Now we're a commission that deals uh, with the the preservation, restoration, and preservation of the Capitol building and its grounds. Uh, we never ever considered the fact we had would have the authority to, as we were thinking of it, legislate regarding guns. So that was like a real shocker to us. So um, we spent I, I, I probably since last Thursday evening, I spent almost every waking hour of my time of life trying to figure out what what this all means for us. But we, we first of all, are still trying to figure out what the uh, legal basis is to say that we could, you know, ban guns, because our first thinking was, well, we can't legislate in that area. There's a whole body of of statute and court law regarding, you know, guns and possession of guns and where guns can can be and cannot be uh, carried. So it was kind of shocking to us to to think that that's even our, um, our bailiwick. And then the, uh, the next question we're going to have to address is, is we all agree with the attorney general's opinion. And, and obviously, for purposes of state agencies, an attorney general formal opinion, which is actually issued on Monday morning just before our commission meeting. The letter on Thursday was an informal letter. We got a formal opinion on Monday morning. Um, but that, that actually stands as law for state agencies unless the legislature uh, overturns it or a court overturns it in a decision. So if, if we can figure out that, that that is sound and we do have the authority, then the next question is, how do you write a regulation? You know, this, again, we're a restoration and, and preservation body. We don't have staff to deal with this. We don't have legal counsel. So we're trying to figure that out. And, of course, it's very complex because if there were a policy, there are a million aspects to it. Uh, does it cover just open carry? Does it cover concealed weapons? If it covers concealed weapons, do we have the authority, the capital Commission, to search people? Or do people be searched as they come in to see if they have a concealed weapon? Um, we have to consult with the state police you know it has to be written in such a way that they can clearly understand it and enforce it um do we do we ban um other law enforcement people from coming in is it, is it all guns just guns of law enforcement which law enforcement it gets pretty complex and we, again we have no resources to, to deal with at this point so we're we're kind of reeling and scrambling right now to catch up with uh, with the situation
0: well you didn't feel in other words that you could unilaterally just simply say no more firearms in the capitol and leave it at that
1: well yeah that you could say that you I mean you, you could say no firearms but that means in the state police could not come in with their guns. law enforcement couldn't come in at the you, bill you were a, a senator and you know when visiting dignitaries come like let's say the city of uh, detroit mayor they come with, with security detail we said no guns they couldn't bring their security detail weapons in it's more complex than just saying no guns. um even if you do it, then is it just guns? Is it other weapons? Um, if, it, if we're going to if we're going to ban uh, concealed weapons, uh, first of all, as I said, do we have the authority to search people for them, or do we can we do we can we get a magnetometer at each door? Do we have staff and equipment to do that? How much does that back up the traffic? It's so there's so many aspects to it that we've never dealt with. I mean, we could tell you a lot about uh, you know the, the historic pain inside the building and how to preserve it and maintain it. And and what what Elijah Myers intended when he originally decorated the the hallways in, of the Capitol building, uh, we're not really experts in uh, how to how to establish right and and, uh, and and implement a law banning guns in the Capitol.
0: I can understand all that. Couldn't you have just said ban all firearms in the Capitol except for law enforcement or maybe even private security for public officials?
1: We could possibly, but again, then we had the question, and I, I've had some discussions with some officials and police to try to understand what they would need. We say law enforcement, then, then is it only on-duty law enforcement or does it include off-duty law enforcement? Some, as you probably know, Bill, many uh, local units of government require their off-duty officers to also carry weapons. I mean, there's just so many nooks and crannies in the policy. You could do it, um, but certainly I would not want to be a person, uh, as a member of the commission, who would just fire off something just to do something without having it well thought out.
0: Well, I certainly... Forcible. Yeah, I sure sympathize with your situation. You had this thrust on you at the 11th hour just before your meeting on Monday. Understandable that you would say, hey, let's take some time and get this right. And so my question is, what might you do going forward at this point?
1: What, what, what I've been doing, and, and, and along with other commission members, we've all been trying to you know, gather some information uh have some some discussion with the attorney general's office we're trying to find independent legal counsel we can we can count on and depend on to kind of again not only in review of the attorney general's opinion i respect the opinion of the, of the attorney general i'm sure it's not totally off base it's just it's very shocking and jarring to us but but it, but it is official attorney general opinion but we're trying to figure out not only the the logical the, the legal uh, logic of it but also what are the limits scope and limits of our authority what can we do what can we not do um, the worst thing to do would be to adopt a policy that's not enforceable by the state police and then have you know them out there standing there with people just flaunting the law because we've passed something that's not enforceable. So we have to work very closely with the state police for sure and, uh, of course, with the House and Senate leadership because right now, and probably continuing after this policy, the House and Senate will allow people uh, with concealed weapons permits, members of, the, of those bodies, to uh, go into their offices and on the floor of the Capitol building with weapons. But they have, they have to pass through, if we pass the... Somebody, us or anybody, passed a ban on guns coming in the building. That, that's a problem because they're going to have to get through the building where there's no guns allowed to get to the floor of the Capitol, of the House and Senate, where they are allowed. So it gets very logistically complex also. Well, you look- A little over a week ago yesterday, we never even dreamed it was even part of our authority. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, you lucked out a little bit uh, Thursday at this uh, third demonstration that was staged at the Capitol there wasn't really any confrontation involving guns or firearms. Nothing bad happened. So you got a little time. What is your
1: timetable? Well, I mean, we, we don't have a specific timetable. We're working to try to get uh, gather information all the, on all the things I just talked to you about, and we're working our way through it carefully. Um, I mean, there's still not, among the, 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 uh, the commission as a whole, there's not, still not a complete agreement or understanding that we really do have that authority. We still have to kind of get everybody to understand what that we do or don't and then if we do we all agree with the limit of that scope and limit of that authority
0: yeah well i hear this is going to take a little bit time longer no question about it as it should you got to get it right rather than get it quick so i want to thank you bill candler a member of the capital commission former secretary of the senate for being our guest thanks bill thank you bill have a good day same to you We'll be back in a minute with uh, Tales of the Owasso Barber. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back and very lucky to have on the line with us Dan McMaster, who is an elected Shiawassee County Commissioner He's also a longtime fixture of Michigan government, worked in the legislature, really knows his way around Lansing, as well as around Shiawassee County, just northeast of the state capital. Dan McMaster, thanks for being with us.
3: Good morning, Bill. Good morning.
0: Well, I want to ask you about uh, probably the world's most famous barber right now. <laughs>
3: OK, so uh, uh, is, Carl Manke, yeah, um, has cut hair for about 60 years. His barber shop is... Located just a couple yards from the intersection of M-21 and M-52 in the middle of Shiawassee County. A local author. He's written a lot of Michigan mystery books and um, kind of a uh, very well-known, very well-known individual. And uh, on May 4th, he decided enough's enough. Um, so allegedly, he's tried to apply for unemployment. That hasn't worked. was denied a small business loan, you know, that, that the government was handing out. Um so he decided he was going to open, and um, so he opened on, on May 4th. That would be two Mondays ago. Uh, Wednesday, uh, May 6th, uh, the city of Owasso Police Department issued two tickets, two misdemeanor tickets. Uh, um, both are like $1,000 fines, 90 days in jail. Uh, one is for violation of health department order, and the other one is violating the uh, Michigan executive order Um So he was given tickets, his hearing date's June 23rd, um, and everyone thought or potentially thought, okay, that was going to be the end of it. Uh, But he stayed open. (laughs) Um, And on um, Friday, February 8th, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services had eight troopers deliver a, obviously in coordination with the governor's office and attorney general's office, eight troopers uh, delivered a cease and desist letter at, like, um, about 6 o'clock Friday evening while he was cutting hair. It was on the evening news. Um, so he wasn't going to be open over the weekend. He said he'd open on Monday, whether, uh, and then the only reason he was, wouldn't be cutting hair would be if he was in handcuffs or if uh, <laughs> if uh, if Jesus Christ, uh Jesus walked through the front door. So mon- mon- Monday morning happened. Uh, there were supporters, protesters, uh, whatever you want to call them, at the courthouse and then also at his barbershop, um, friends, family, uh, some local militia, the Michigan Home Guard militia, uh, expecting somebody to come and lock the place down or arrest them or whatever. Uh, the sheriff, uh, Sheriff Bogol put out a, uh, a one-pager saying, uh, which uh, six other Michigan sheriffs have also said this, you know, uh, you know, please, please respect the stay-at-home order, use common sense. They're using discretion, um, you know, they're... They're, they're being strained because everyone's calling in, complaining about a neighbor's doing this or this business owner's doing this and they're that. And, and, you know, they're trying to deal with emergency calls and, 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 the sheriff, along with a lot of other sheriffs, feeling frustrated, just kind of put, put out a statement, um, that he wasn't going to enforce the governor's orders. Um, the health department, uh, the Michigan health department, um, applied for a TRO, a temporary restraining order with, uh, in our circuit court. With Judge Matt Stewart, that was denied um, at the end of the day um, for three reasons: one, the defendant wasn't present and the defendant um, deserves to be heard; two, it took um, a week for them to apply for this uh, restraining order; and then, if 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 eminent if it was such eminent danger, the state police should have taken action Friday when they were there, um, and they did not. So, so that was denied. Um there was a press conference um you know they considered a victory uh Wednesday the 13th um his his individual and his shop barber licenses were revoked by LARA. and, and that's
0: the um, um, licensing and regulatory affairs state department in Lansing.
3: Correct correct yes. yep yeah. yep they're the ones that oversee the, his license um they supposed allegedly they had opened a file a, a week ago but uh Wednesday they pulled those licenses Yesterday, uh, Representative Matt Maddock out of Oakland County and a senator, but I don't know what senator, uh, a Republican senator, showed up and got their haircut. And then today, supposedly, um, he's got a long list of um, appointments of other legislators that are coming from all over the state to get their haircut. Now, I've uh, spoke with some contacts in the Attorney General's office. Um, you know, I, I, they no, nobody wants to arrest or haul away a. 77-year-old man in handcuffs. Um, they don't want to, you know, they, they want him to be compliant. Um, they're going to try everything they can and all their resources to, you know, start a dialogue, try, try to get him um, to close. But the reality of it is, they could go back to court um, and have a hearing um, and, and maybe, maybe get a restraining order. Um, and then if he violates that, they could, <clears throat> they could get contempt of court, and then they could come chain his his shop shut. Um, but right now, he's still cutting hair, and the big question is in Michigan, of course, the Republican legislature, as we speak, is in, is in claims court right now with, with the, the governor over, over these executive orders, and you know, whether we have a constitutional crisis, state constitutional crisis, and, and what, what laws are really valid, um, he's still cutting hair, and it appears nobody can or is willing to stop them so well what about
0: what about the hearing that judge stewart says he wants to have on the restraining order is he scheduled
3: that that it's my understanding that has not been scheduled and and the attorney general's office is not um um yeah they've not made that request yet so they're you know everyone's kind of everyone's kind of stepped into this and 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 you know I don't want to say everyone's pointing their fingers, but the state passes these rules, but they want the locals to enforce it. The locals are asking for guidance or information or support, and everyone's kind of pointing their fingers at each other. And right or wrong, this guy's cutting hair. I mean, you don't have to go there and get your hair cut. I mean, you know, it's not like you're being forced to go to this barbershop, but people are lining up. People are coming from all over the state to Owasso because I believe he's the only open barbershop. There may be more. Because if you can't <laughs> okay. shut down a barbershop in Owasso, uh, how you going to shut down two, three, five, 20, 100, 500 all over the state. Um, it, it just calls into question everything with this COVID and everyone was taking it serious in the beginning. You know, I mean, but we're going on what, seven weeks, eight weeks. And when it really gets down to it, how do you how do you enforce some of this stuff?
0: Yeah, let me ask: What is the local sentiment about uh, Carl Mankey in the barbershop? What he's doing? I mean, do you feel public opinion in Shiawassee is in support of him largely, or is the, the community divided? Do they think? I would
3: say right now. I mean, I haven't done a poll, but I would say it's divided. I pretty, you know, there's some people that are upset that that he's not following the rules. There's some people upset that they can't be open, but he's open to making money. People we are upset that. People from southeast Michigan, from Wayne and Oakland County, are driving up here, potentially, you know, contaminating people. Um, and then there's other people that are like, you know, they believe that it's his constitutional right, his U.S. constitutional right to be open. They believe that, that Whitmer there's, there has overstepped, um, you know, that it's just, it's just too much.
0: Well, and this also, is the first rebellion. Also, yeah, also. Uh... Some people could simply be concerned about health. I mean, that, oh, yeah. he, you know, oh, yeah. he is wearing a mask, right? And he does a lot of sanitary, hygienic practices in his shop,
3: doesn't he? To so try and- I have not I've not been in the shop, but every picture, every news clip, everything I've seen, all the clients have masks on. He has masks on. Um, and it's my understanding he is taking extra steps to keep his place clean. Yes.
0: Wow. Well, uh, you do you think there's uh, at this point? It, it looks to me like it's really up to Judge Stewart at this point uh, to schedule a hearing and see what happens in the hearing. Because other than that, it looks to me like the state is very nervous about making Carl Mankey into a martyr. And as you say, that, leading him off the in exact
3: word that is the exact word that my contacts in the Attorney General's Office have said. We don't want to turn a seventy-seven year old into a martyr and. We're just trying to get him into compliance, but I believe the only thing that could really shut him down is if they request a hearing through Judge Stewart on this TRO, um, where where Mankey can be present and you know they can go through this. But you know a, a, a TRO, a temporary restraining order, that's for like emergency purposes. Um, and as this goes on, as the weeks go by, it doesn't look like such an emergency. Wow.
0: Listen, that is a fantastic report. Thank you very much, Dan McMaster, for giving us a heads up on everything going on in Shiawassee County in Owasso. Dan McMaster, Shiawassee County Commissioner, thanks for being our guest. Thank you. We'll be back in a minute. We're going to talk about something else that's actually happening while the coronavirus pandemic rages. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned and we just finished a few minutes ago talking to a Shiawassee County Commissioner, Dan McMaster, about the world's most famous barber, Carl Mankey. But now we're going to talk to an Ingham County Commissioner, and he is Mark Grebner, but he is much more than a county commissioner. He is a prominent political consultant and an expert on elections. Mark Grebner, thanks for being our guest once again.
2: You're very kind to honor me with letting me (laughs) talk on your show.
0: (laughs) Well, the reason we've got you on is in the middle of this coronavirus chaos, uh, there is actually a process supposedly moving forward on an election uh, coming up in August. We just got through with one on May 5th, but in August there will be the regularly scheduled primary election, if it's going to be held in August, when it's supposed to be the first Tuesday after the first Monday in the month. And then we've got a November general election, but there's been so much confusion in the last few weeks on candidacies and petitions. I just want to ask you, Mark Grebner, where do we stand now? What is going on?
2: Well, uh I don't have any doubt that the election will be held in August. Uh, I guess it's conceivable that if one more court sticks a log in the gears, uh, it might get delayed a week or something like that because they've now run out of time. There's no slack in the system because uh, courts uh, intervened and kind of uh, interfered with the uh, process by delaying it for about three weeks. But, But I'm pretty sure we're going to hold an election August 4th. What's happened in Michigan, because we've now got no reason absentee voting, and because it's almost illegal to vote in person, I suppose that it's not quite illegal, but it's close. <laughs> uh, and, and by that time, maybe it'd be a little less illegal. But I think that what we're going to see is an almost all absentee election. In other words, I think we're going to do this almost by mail. Uh, and, and you know, it's kind of a, it, it's a coincidence, but it's... It, Fortuity that we have proposal three, which passed in uh, 2018, allowing no reason absentee voting. Well, all the clerks have been gradually sauntering in the direction of encouraging the voters to vote that way and get to have voters list their names with the clerks so they automatically are mailed applications. But the process of moving there has been very slow, and then suddenly it's becoming a stampede, and suddenly. Thousands and thousands of people are adding their names to the list of automatic absentee application recipients. But by, by that I mean the clerks mail applications to about a million people now automatically before each election, and I think the number of people on that list is growing pretty rapidly. So, so I think that that the two things they dovetail; they, they're coming together: the, the coronavirus epidemic and the. Uh, uh, move toward mail-in voting just happened to kind of link up and so we're going to see a conversion almost entirely to absentee voting in August. Okay. I, I don't know how you're going to staff polling places. I mean it's going to be very interesting to see how they come up with staff for 5,000 polling places around the state. I don't think they can do it.
0: Well, let let me ask you about another facet of this and that is the uh, decision by the federal district judge a couple of weeks ago to uh, cut the number of signatures required on petitions in half and to delay the filing deadline and the withdrawal deadline, which I think maybe is this week, Friday. Uh, What about that? That has been challenged in court. There was a federal uh, court of appeals decision on that, and there's been intervention by the Secretary of State in some respect. What's happened on all that? What impact has that had on candidacies, people actually running? Is that
2: settled right now? Do we know who is running in August or not? Well, well, we know who has filed. Uh, the, the secretary of state was technically the defendant in that suit. I don't want to get too deep into the legal weeds, but uh, the secretary of state was sued and, and uh, resisted kind of weakly. The Court of Appeals overturned the order by the federal district judge, but then left it in place, just announced he was wrong to have done it, but it was okay. And eventually the secretary of state, instead of objecting to it, accepted the order, which they had appealed. I don't know why they appealed it, but they then they didn't. They finally let it go into effect. So today at five o'clock is now the deadline for submitting challenges to petitions, for certain candidates. The, the decision that was originally made extending the deadline only applied to certain candidates. And it's too complicated to explain who they are, but there are a, a bunch of candidates for judgeships especially, uh, who who, uh, for a long time it was uncertain how many signatures they had to submit and when and when the challenge would be and what the rules were going to be for considering them. But all that has, uh, all that has finally subsided as, as the deadline approaches for printing ballots and mailing them out. So so anyway, today is the deadline for it. Uh, there are three or four candidates who it's not clear whether they're going to be on the ballot or not. Um, I'm doing my best to get a couple of them off. That's actually one of the things I do during my day job is I challenge signatures and petitions. Uh, we'll see what finally happens. I I don't think there's any more litigation. I I hope that nobody comes up with any reason... To interfere with the printing of the primary election ballot. I think there will be another challenge before the November election for independent candidates. That'll be another whole tangled mess. God knows how that'll be resolved. Anyway, things are a big mess, but, but finally they've, they've, people have stopped suing each other and there's no longer anything going on right now. So at this point, the Secretary of State has a plan for moving forward and getting ballots printed and all that.
0: Independent of judicial candidates, I think one of the biggest question mark races is the congressional district race in the Democratic primary in Detroit between Rashida Tlaib, who's the incumbent, and possibly the president of the Detroit City Council, Brenda Jones. Do you think it's clear at this point whether Brenda Jones is going to be on the ballot to challenge Rashida Tlaib or not?
2: I think that she is not, although uh, if somebody thinks she is, they're probably right. Uh, but but my guess is that that, that uh, Rashida dodged a bullet there, uh, just because the original federal decision required that in order to to uh, qualify for his opinion, which was then overturned but left in place, which I don't understand either. But but the original requirement was that you had to have formed your committee. By March 10th. I have no idea how that could possibly be legally required, but that was in the original order, and it seems to have been accepted by everybody. And it looks like and Brenda Jones did not do that.
0: Brenda Jones That's
2: did. right. Apparently. So none of this stuff happened to apply to her. Now, I I don't know why, but as far as I know, she hasn't sued over it. I think that I take that to mean that she's sort of acquiescing. But Yeah,
0: yeah that's interesting because uh, she could if she is ruled off the ballot, not uh, able to persuade the Board of State canvassers that she has a sufficient number of signatures? And that's another question, right? I mean, she got signatures in, but not too much over the minimum, and they could be challenged, and she'd be below the minimum.
2: That's right. That's right. I I don't think the Board of Canvassers has officially ruled on it, but my, my guess would be the staff report will say that that they don't find sufficient number of signatures, and then uh, the Board of Canvassers will rubber stamp that. Uh, I don't know what what day they're meeting to rubber stamp the entire pile of staff recommendations, but at that point it will be official. I have not heard that there's much uh, dispute over that. I have not heard, for example, that uh, Brenda has answered the the, uh, uh, filing that said she didn't have enough signatures. If she's filed something in response, I have not heard that.
0: So, despite the confusion of the last few weeks, you think that as of 5 o'clock this afternoon, Friday, uh, May 15th, that going forward, everybody in charge of the process, Secretary of State, clerks on down, have things enough under control that they can make the August primary on August 4th happen the way it's supposed to happen?
2: Well, that's a little strong. Uh, (laughs) I, I would say that we don't know exactly what will go wrong next. But there are five hundred precincts in Detroit. How are they gonna find what, four thousand people, three thousand people to staff them? Yeah, but I don't
0: know. But maybe they don't need to if everybody's gonna be
2: doing it by absentee. Well, nobody has adopted an amendment to law and at this point each of those precincts has been established. It can't be abolished except by notice to the voters. It's required to be open and staffed. Uh, I suppose they could just violate law. Maybe the governor will issue another executive order saying that you don't have to really staff precincts. But <laughs> but I think there's a requirement to staff all these precincts. What? I don't know. I I'm I just watch. I, I, they, don't let, well, they don't let me run anything. Come
0: on now. You're doing more than just watch, but you've done a great job of watching for us. And our listeners, thank you very much. Mark Rebner, Ingham County Commissioner and election expert. Mark Rebner, thank you. We'll be back next week with more in this never-ending saga.